Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Working Therapist Podcast. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host, and today we have part two of visual perceptual disorders, problems. So if you didn't catch part one, we talked about assessment, and first we defined visual perceptual deficits, and then we talked all about assessment. And the two therapists that helped me with part one are Sarah Maust and Rachel Beaver. So why don't you guys, for those people who didn't hear part one, but now they're going to go back and listen, but why don't you guys introduce yourselves and tell a little bit about what you do here at PDT, and then we're going to jump into the rest of this topic, which will be goal writing and treatment. So Sarah, you start us off. Hi, I'm Sarah Maust, and I'm an OT at Pediatric Developmental Therapy. I work with a very diverse caseload, which includes a number of diagnoses, as well as kids that have a variety of visual perceptual deficits. Okay, very good. Okay, so Rachel, you go. Yeah, so I am an occupational therapist and also have a variety of kids with different visual perceptual deficits, variety of ages. There's birth to three, birth to five, preschool age we work with. And then at our outpatient, we also have kids that are elementary to middle school age. So they may have different functional things going on depending on if they're infant, toddler, or school age. So that will kind of a variety of things to work on. Exactly. Welcome first to both of y'all. Thank you for again for being here. I'm really excited. The first one was a great podcast. In fact, we thought we could get all this stuff talked about in one podcast and we really had to divide up in two because we just kept talking and talking and talking. I learned a ton. This is an area that originally the idea for the podcast came from me wanting to know more. So I appreciate you guys participating again and helping us out because I really do want to know more about this topic. I think it's fascinating. It's just not something a speech therapist knows much about. So I'm all about this topic and I'm very excited. So thank you guys for being here. And I guess we probably, if you didn't catch podcast one, we probably should do a short little recap. We defined visual perceptual deficits. So Rachel, you kind of want to just give us a quick little concise definition for us? Yeah, visual perception is kind of an umbrella term and then there's subskills that go under that. We kind of talked about the visual pyramid as a way to think about the development of skills. So that starts with like your ocular motor abilities of your eyes, your visual acuity and like visual fields. So are your eyes functioning and taking in the input? And then kind of the next level up is your attention to the task. So you have visual attention on what you're doing, are you able to scan and to track, and then recognizing patterns, and then kind of your top layer, which is more what you need for like your academic skills is having that visual memory and visual cognition so that you can take in what you see and then, you know, respond appropriately and work with it. So we kind of talked about the pyramid and then Mm -hmm. some of those sub-skills include your visual discrimination, your visual closure, spatial relationships, visual memory, and then figure ground discrimination. We went into more detail in the first podcast about those. Yes, that was great. Thank you. Good synopsis. So now we're ready for actually my favorite stuff, though I learned a lot in the first one, but I love to talk about goal writing because I love to talk about the functional application, which you learn from the exam and then how you're going to functionally work on it and then into cool therapy ideas because really I'm excited for everybody to hear it. Everybody that's listening doesn't get the privilege of working with you guys on a regular basis. Sarah is very, very creative about a lot of her little stuff and she and I actually have co-treated on one little fella. Mm -hmm. And, but you know, we work fairly closely together 
And then Rachel's also extremely creative. So I'm real excited to hear about what you're doing with your little people in therapy. So let's start with goal writing and talking about functionally writing goals. So we've talked about this little pyramid, which was a whole new concept for me last time. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as a visual pyramid, but now I know. So there you go. And so Sarah, why don't you start us off and talk about how that pyramid, how you use it and how you use that to write goals? Okay. The pyramid is a framework through which you view visual perceptual deficits. So say if someone is having trouble with skills at the top of the pyramid, you kind of want to work your way back and see if they're also having trouble with something at the bottom. Say, for example, ocular motor skills, such as the ability to track someone's finger moving or a ball or a toy. So say that's where you're starting with just tracking the ability of the eye to follow something through space. You might start, you might write your goal saying that Jimmy will demonstrate improved visual motor skills in order to track objects during occupational experiences. It's a good broad. Yeah, I, I, I like to write my goals broad because sometimes if you box it in too much, then you're working in between, you know, one or two activities and mm-hmm. life isn't one or two activity. They need to be able to take the skill and bring it to different things. So, I mean, we might start out with a cute little light up toy and having them, okay, you know, sit still, keep your head still as I move it up and down, left and right, you know, through different patterns. And then we might move to, okay, keep your eye on the ball as we're throwing it. So there might be different stages to the goal as well. Well, and I think from what I learned in the first podcast that this topic is even the same deficit could look different for different kids. So even the same general problem can be present itself very differently. And also then what each little kid sort of having trouble with in their life may present maybe a little bit different too. I mean, Jimmy might be able to track a ball as he's throwing it, but he might not be able to track across a page as he's reading. And that might be why when he's answering questions for his homework, he's having trouble, but that's still a tracking skill. And I mean, that would be a completely different goal versus the one I just spoke about. So Rachel, where do you start with writing goals? I think Sarah covered it pretty well, but Mm -hmm. certainly trying to figure out kind of what's the underlying thing going on Mm -hmm. and then always bringing it back to kind of what functional skill you're working towards. So if it was for that example of visual tracking, I'm thinking of one little guy, he, one, he needed glasses, so that made a huge difference. But we kind of started out with his visual tracking skills with the ball or like having like a mobile something swinging like if he was laying supine and was following it and then kind of working up to his visual scanning so doing kind of some like eye spy or you know finding an item on a busy table like you know they have a lot of stations in their classes and they'll have you know some sort of project they're supposed to be working on and can he find you know the items that he needs so as far as like his overall goal that we're working on is that he will develop his visual motor, his visual perception skills so that he can participate in his class routine so that he can use those ball skills. So I might kind of write it like an A, B, and C, like we're going to start with him just tracking it while he's stationary, Mm -hmm. then playing like ball where he's moving his dynamic, then maybe he's actually scanning for items, then maybe doing a visual motor activity like doing a puzzle or doing like a matching of some sort. So I might kind of make like steps of the goal as far as kind of the development that I wanted to work on or so you can kind of keep it really broad and in your mind that is kind of your progression, but maybe you don't put it in there just so you're not limited. So Sarah's was kind of more of a broad goal. 
but said sometimes it helps to kind of show the steps and then you can say, oh, they've met A and B because they're tracking now. We're going to do C and D. So it kind of helps show progress. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. When I think what you said, showing progress is key because now in this medical age we live in, the medical world we live in, you've got to basically justify everything you do. You always have to make it so that you can show progress to the insurance company and so you can continue to get funded, you know? So I think you do have to make it, have it measurable and achievable. Definitely. I do find as a practitioner right now, I'm kind of really kind of trying to hone my goal writing skills. I find myself always doing this dance between, okay, I want to make it broad so that I'm not limited to just inset puzzles and just tracking this. You can say, hey, five out of six times they're doing it. So they've got the goal. And you can be like, hey, yeah, they're doing that now. So I'm going to change it. Right. Yeah. So basically what both you guys are saying is from your assessments and with this topic, I think, again, it's so broad and presents itself so differently for different kids. But basically from your assessment, you're identifying areas where they're having deficits. So what I like about what both of you guys are saying is that you make it personal and functional for that child. So both of you are saying, okay, well, he can't do certain things in this area. She can't do certain things in that area, but maybe this little boy loves baseball. So, you know, you apply it back to his baseball world. And then the little girl, maybe she loves arts and crafts. You apply it to that. They may both have the same kind of problem, but how you work on it and your goal writing, it sort of matches the little child. Exactly. Which I think that's always key because you know what, if it's a boring goal and you pull out boring stuff, they're not going to be motivated and they're not going to want to do it. And it was harder to get parent buy-in too. So when you're writing this, I guess the big takeaway from this goal writing is keep it functional and apply it to real life situations and stuff. Functional and client-centered. Yes, exactly. Functional client-centered. Yeah, that's good. So do y'all find this a difficult topic to get parents to understand? I think it depends on where the parent is coming from, but I think visual motor skills are frequently where I I do find parents have questions. Usually they'll come back with, well, the doctor says his eyes are 20-20. Mm, and mm-hmm. then so you kind of have to explain, well, yes, your eyes can be 20-20 in terms of visual acuity, but you can still have deficits within these areas. And then once you start explaining how these deficits present themselves and what they look like. And the parent goes, oh, so that's why they have trouble finding their favorite toy when it's in the middle of everything in the toy box or Mm, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. How about you, Rachel? Yeah, I was thinking along the lines, and I think of this especially when I'm trying to educate parents about sensory processing issues, but visual perception is kind of similar in that they're not necessarily uh, well-known subjects. And so a lot of times, like when I'm doing an evaluation and I'm doing like the parent interview, I kind of try to ask questions about behaviors that you would see if they have the deficit. And so it kind of validates like, oh, yes, they do do that. Oh, yes, they have issues with that. Yes, I see that at home. And then you say, well, this is what I'm thinking might be underlying it and this is what I want to work on. Mm-hmm. It kind of gives them some confidence and kind of helps them feel like, oh, you know, I know what's going on or yes, there's kind of a reason and we can work on this now. So when they affirm that, you can kind of be like, well, this is what's behind it then and it makes a lot more sense because they already can picture their child doing that behavior. Yep, so. definitely. And then you get more buy-in and then carry over and faster yeah. progress and all that good stuff. So let's move on now from goal writing to therapy. And I'm excited about some therapy ideas and sort of y'all talking us through some real life things you've done to work on various issues. Rachel, why don't you kind of start us off on this topic and we'll just go from there. Yeah, so we kind of mentioned, of course, always wanting to find you know what's motivating to the child. And definitely I found for 
a lot of kids with visual issues or visual impairments, toys with music, auditory feedback are always going to be a really great way to start because it's very motivating always and they really good. enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Also, you can start tracking with that and then work to, you know, just tracking a toy without any of that sound feedback. So they really have to follow it visually. A lot of them really enjoy movement activities. And so that can be a great way to get just engagement, whether it be on a therapy ball or a swing or something along those lines, just changing the position that they're sitting, whether on their prone or they're sitting or in the chair, just different ways to set them up for therapy. A lot of them just really enjoy the movement, so they respond well to that. I guess kind of along with that idea of seeking movement and the auditory input, I find it's really helpful to know kind of what the sensory pattern is of the child. And without going into too much detail, I mean, the theory of sensory integration talks about, you know, different thresholds for your neurological system responding. So it could be that they are over-responders, under-responders, or sensory craving. Those are kind of like the three categories. So if they're over-responsive, you know, they're very sensitive to input and they respond much quicker than most kids would. So in that case, you might want to start off doing like some proprioceptive activities, which would be just like input to their joints and muscles, which may be, you know, you could think of like doing a deep squeeze or being in like a, a compression swing, like one of the knit fabrics, or whatever, you can make a little swing out of that. You're just right. doing some sort of heavy work, doing crawling, doing pushing, pulling, row, row, row your boat. Those are just kind of examples of how you get input to their muscles and joints. And that's always very calming. Right. Doing things that are very predictable. So you might use the same word to transition or you might do a countdown or something like that so that they kind of know what's coming, especially if they have visual impairments. I might try to give them cues. We're going to sit up now. So I'm giving cues to their arms or I'm going to lay you on your back. I might touch their back or we're going to just kind of giving them some sort of cues so they know what's happening and then kind of slowly exposing them to things that they are resistant to. So I might do like a sensory bin with a child, have them sit in there and then play and kind of that might desensitize them to kind of that sensitivity to touch. So we might have them sit in a bean bin or with rice or just things like that. Okay. I'm not cutting you off, but like I said, at the beginning of this podcast, Rachel's very creative. You just get that girl started and she's going to go. I love it. It's awesome. So then for the under responders. Yeah. Um, so the under-responders then would be, you know, they're the kids that are very lethargic, very mm-hmm. flat affect, takes a lot to get them to engage or to get reactions from them. So mm-hmm. you're doing like, you think of like fast blast. So activities that are quick, intense, high frequency, and that's going to get them alert for therapy. And then the cravers are kids that are constantly seeking. They're kids that are constantly on the move, can't sit still, can't attend to a task at the table. So you might want to start out once again doing like some really heavy work tasks, but not just like calming. So not just like a hug, but having them do like a purposeful task so that Hmm. when they're seeking input, you don't want them just running around the room, like bouncing off the walls. You want them like organized. Like, so doing a task that has a goal with the proprioceptive input is going to help them get ready for a therapy task. Whereas if you're just like, let them in the gym, just run around, run off steam, isn't really going to get them ready for therapy because they're just going to be all disorganized running around the room. So you kind of need to give them like an activity that has a goal to it and has heavy work parts to it. And then also like setting up the environment, making it very structured and simplified is going to help them to participate more. So I think we have next topic for podcast, right? I mean, that was easy, right? Because what you said there, we could for sure podcast all day long. So tune in people, we'll for sure do something on that. (laughs) All right. So let's move on to like kids who have trouble with visual perceptual deficit. So you've basically, you've kind of gotten them ready. You're sensory wise, you, you understand where they are and you've kind of done what the work you needed to do 
basically, I'm just sort of summing you up, Rachel, in a very non-OT-ish kind of way. But anyway, you basically sort of sensory-wise know kind of where they are, if they're underachievers, overachievers, or cravers, and then you sort of work from there, right? So you kind of set them up. Yeah, yeah. It's just kind of a good preparatory activity and way to set up your therapy time to get them ready. All right. And so then we're working on different visual perceptual deficits. So for kids who have visual discrimination problems, Sarah, you want to talk a little bit about kind of things that you've done with kids with this issue? Sure. A lot of times with kids with visual discrimination issues, what I will do is I will start out with them at the table. So you're taking away all kinds of other distractions Mm -hmm. and say, you know, they're having trouble with shapes or letters. So I might start out with one shape or one letter and have them look at it, tell me what it is. If it's a physical object, pick it up, kind of talk about the characteristics. And then I'll add another one in and I'll see, you know, okay, can you tell me which is the circle and which is the square? Or can you find the A or where's the letter C, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then when they've done well with that, I start to switch it up. I might, you know, keep it at a field of two, but I might put things in a different order. And then once they've done well with that, I might switch it to a larger field, field of three or four. So they're trying to, you know, find what they're looking for and those sorts of things. So you're really getting them to visually attend, look at what's on the table, be able to pick out the characteristics or whatever makes one thing different than another. You got it. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just was making sure I understood. And then that for like all different ages, I guess you modify it based on the age of the child. Exactly. Modify it based on the age of the child. Okay. Gotcha. So is that kind of how the visual discrimination activity works, Rachel? Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that kind of what you do? I was thinking, you know, uh, I feel like for a lot of just activities I'm doing with kids, I kind of try to work in them identifying characteristics. So like, do you want the big piece or the small piece? You know, stuff like that, like just helping them identify or especially kids that are nonverbal, you know, you're labeling everything and you're telling them the colors and shapes as they're doing and trying to get them to imitate and I mean, I'm not a speech therapist, but I try to like support by kind of identifying things for them, especially kids with visual deficits. They're probably having trouble recognizing characteristics. And then going along with that is kind of like matching and like thinking of like puzzles and any kind of activity where you're matching items. That's kind of, you have to recognize the characteristics. Same thing for the next one, visual closure is being able to recognize part of it from the whole. So that's like, that's what a puzzle is. So you kind of have to see characteristics of objects first and then you can recognize them when you don't see all of it and then being able to do like puzzles and more visual motor tasks. Puzzles are definitely a good visual closure activity. Another good one is where you draw a portion of a shape or an object and then they have to finish it on the other side. There's some really good like activity books that have those things printed out. For both of these topics, visual discrimination and visual closure, this has got speech therapy all over. I mean, good dug a mugga. I was doing all this visual perceptual deficit therapy for 20-some years. I didn't even know it. I'm, just <laughs> I'm not because I come up from a different angle. But still, it's definitely speechy. I know you're coming up from a different direction than I am and for different issues, but it's... It works really well yeah, in co-treat situations, I yeah, find. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then spatial relationships... I mean, you might also be looking at a puzzle type situation. I do a lot of inset puzzles with the younger kids or interlocking puzzles and giving them cues. Okay, turn this piece, try it over here. You know, look, it's a corner piece. It's flat on the edge. Right. So giving them clues. Giving them clues and things of that nature. So for a child, I'm kind of going back just a little bit because 
but I'll bring around to spatial relationships. For a child who has visual closure deficit problems, then they probably would, I would just assume, have trouble reading because different letters may not look like the letters. Yes. And then also um, just identifying pictures, or they mm-hmm. may anticipate that, or may say it's one thing, but it's really another because right. they're just having trouble understanding what the whole picture is. Yes. Gotcha. And then spatial relationships is different from that because in spatial relationships, they're looking more at the characteristics of the actual thing you're seeing versus like this is the flat edge, this is a curvy edge, this is a... So they're seeing the whole thing. They just aren't putting the very characteristics together. Yes. Am I doing it right? Yes, you're doing it right. (laughs) You got it. I think kind of along with that, to start off, it can really help to do like gross motor tasks first before you do the fine motor. So like doing obstacle courses, doing like social play songs, Simon Says, things where they are like imitating you and having to develop like that body awareness and where their body is in space is a really good place to start. And then working down to the fine motor and understanding like, you know, directions and orienting things or like, you know, top, bottom, left, right. Those are really hard direction words. You can't really learn that verbally or through fine motor as well as I think you can with like gross motor skills. Then you really understand I'm moving forward. I'm moving backwards. I'm moving under, I'm moving over. It really helps them learn those terms and mm-hmm. how their body moves. So then it's a good place to start. For children who have a lot of visual spatial relationship problems, would these kids have more like depth perception problems? How like gross motor wise would you see this sort of manifest? It wouldn't be a depth perception issue. I was just thinking spatial relationships, like would they see the end of the curb or know the curb? or Probably, I don't know. More clumsiness, more falling, more not aware of the environment. They're not able to, like, they're probably just not going to be coordinated and smooth with their movements because they're not really sure how to move their body through space. Or if it's, like, a new task, they don't really know how to approach it. And they really struggle, like, to figure out how to do a new task because they're not really sure how to move their body. Stuff like that. So what about, I love this topic, visual memory. Sarah, like, help me out with the visual memory. I'm fascinated by memory stuff. Okay. Visual memory is the ability to look at something and remember it. So, Mm -hmm. for example, with a school-age child, say they are looking at the board to write down what the topic of their sentence is supposed to be. And, you know, once they get back down to their paper, you know, they might be missing letters or entire words because that connection between their eyes and their brain is not quite working. So you might start with activities to strengthen that. And so say here in the clinic, I might have words that are taped up on the wall or even start with letters or shapes and say, okay, can you look and find the word ball? Mm -hmm. And then, okay, Now think about that word, look at your paper, and write it down. I mean, that's incorporating other visual skills as well. Sometimes I've incorporated gross motor skills, you know, throw the ball at the word, you know, look at the word, write it on the paper so that you're preparing the kid and it's not just a sedentary task. I would expect that kids with visual memory problems would have a terrible time with sight words, like memorizing sight words. Yes. I bet that would be very difficult. What about you, Rachel? What's your thought on therapy ideas, that kind of thing? I definitely think doing like the near point and like far point copying, you know, being able to remember it long enough to do that. And there's, you know, like all those like visual memory games, you know, flipping over the cards and having to remember where things were. Memory. There's lots of board games that we have like a little game that's a penguin game where you hide the colored eggs under the penguin, similar idea. So there's fun little kids games that you can use. You have another one that's more of like visual scanning. So it's called Spot It. You probably have used that, but 
you know, you have a card with several items on it and there's another card with several items on it and you got to find the one that's on yours and that other card. And so you really have to scan. You have to remember what you've seen on yours, remember what you've seen on the other one and like find a matching one. So there's lots of games like that that make it more fun. And I know you, you mentioned like sight words, also spelling. Spelling is oh, really yeah. difficult with kids who are on visual memory mm-hmm. and that like sequ- sequential memory. So remembering mm, this word, yeah. these are the letters in this order. So like you might see a lot of issues with spelling yeah. if you have visual memory going on. Yeah, and I, uh-huh. I would think also that spotted game would be great for kids with visual discrimination. Definitely. Yeah. Sometimes instead of using the two cards, I'll actually just use one card and have them look at it and find a particular mm-hmm. object or find all the objects of the same color or right. the big ones and the downgrade small ones. It. Yeah, downgrade it that way. So. That's smart. That's smart. All those games y'all mentioned are from Blue Orange. And actually, as you were talking, Sarah, about visual closure, and we have another game called Doodle Quest. So I don't know if, if either one of you played Doodle Quest, but it's also by Blue Orange Games. And the child has to actually draw like through a maze of things it's, it's, there's a lot of different activities in doodle quest it's sort of a dry erase board but as you're talking about visual closure that's the game that i started thinking of so anyway we're kind of giving blue orange a nice little plug here but if, <laughs> if people out there listening are not familiar with blue orange games we personally here at pdt love them we have a lot of them that we use i think they're great quality great games they do a lot of good stuff for this as well as other things lots of activities they're very adaptable games so if you haven't caught our podcast with renault from blue orange games listen to that and we talk all about their products so let's bring it home girls all right figure ground that's the last one tell me what figure ground issues are and how do you work on it figure ground is the ability to pick out an object from a chaotic or complex background so that might be you have a busy table full of papers and crayons and things and you need to find the scissors the ability to locate that so I often start with this either as a game or within a functional task. You know, say we're in the middle of our therapy session and we do need the scissors. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to ask them to look for it. But also things like we spread out these toys and can you find one and I'll give a certain characteristic. And again, you know, it's drawing on some of those earlier skills we discussed, finding it in that chaotic background, or you have all the pieces out of an inset puzzle, can you find the dog and put it in? So those are just some of the ways I approach it. I'm sure Rachel has some others as well. Yeah, I definitely think you can work it into like the activities that you're doing, especially like doing shape sorters or puzzles where you leave them all out on the table and make them find it as opposed to downgrading it and like handing them one to do or limiting to like two choices, like making them look for it. And then doing games like I Spy type of games, you can always do. I was even thinking, you know, for older kids, you can have them do things like, you know, look for something in the grocery store, help mom. That can be like a way to work it in or in the kitchen, like go find this in the kitchen drawer because everyone knows your drawers are crazy in the kitchen. So just stuff like that you could always do for like older kids that they could kind of work on it at home. I'm hoping that will be the advanced level because I have trouble with all that right there. Like finding stuff in the grocery store, finding something on my kitchen drawers, finding stuff in every drawer, every yes, finding stuff in every is. room I go into. Surely I have an advanced figure ground problem that y'all are identifying or I'm self-assessed. I don't know. Anyway. I, I do too. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good Lordy, who doesn't? Sheesh. So those are, I think, are all great therapy ideas. Any particular figure ground toys? Rachel, you mentioned some shape sorters. Sarah mentioned having a variety of things on the table and finding those, kind of keeping it very functional. Any other special toys y'all really love for figure ground or any other that you're like, oh my gosh, this is the best. I use this toy all the time with kids with these various visual deficits kind of issues. Any other toys you just want to mention that are therapy materials you think they're great? You know, 
board games have a lot of mm -hmm. figure ground things. Just say, for example, Candyland. That's what popped into my head because there's all those pictures around and, you know, you're trying to find your way through. You can uh, adapt them to be whatever kind of skill you're working on. Yes. A lot of them acquire all those skills. Exactly. Some ladders, Candyland. Mm -hmm. They can go on for days. Okay, so I think we've covered the goal writing therapy concepts and ideas. Again, if you didn't catch the first podcast, the assessment, and just define it all. So I sort of said it all again. So, Rachel, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Sarah, also, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been great. I tell you, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with you guys all the time. And so if you don't have a good OT to work with out there, then go make a friend, be a friend specific to an OT so they can help you through this. Because this is not training that I think, it's definitely not training speech people get. And I don't think it's training PT people get. So you do need a good friend who's an OT. <laughs> and I'm lucky to know several. So that's cool. All right. So thank you guys again. I really do appreciate it. All your little people that work with you are very fortunate because they have two very, very creative therapists. So yay Aww. for our little PDT peeps too. Thanks. Yes. Very, thank very. Thank you so much. Awesome. Okay. If you, again, look on our website for the Blue Orange Games. We mentioned a ton of those today. Other uh, toys that are all therapist endorsed kind of on our website. So thanks everybody. I enjoyed spending some time with you today and I'll catch you on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 